Hey guys, this is Andrew. Today I have a great guest in front of the VC community, Dave Palmer. Dave is one of the most well-qualified people at the intersection of machine learning and cybersecurity. Dave, as background, is a very successful former operator, now turned investor. Today he's a general partner at 1011 Ventures, one of the leading cybersecurity venture funds globally. Before that though, Dave was the co-founder and head of product at Darktrace. Darktrace today is publicly traded and has nearly $600 million in ARR, but more importantly, it was one of the first companies to build a very large business with machine learning as a first-class citizen in its product. In this show, we cover the role machine learning has already played in cybersecurity, the various challenges LLMs are creating for CISOs, and several very large areas of opportunity for new vendors. As always, the key takeaways from my interviews are on ctlresearch.com, but if you're here to listen to the full audio, I hope you enjoy it. Dave, awesome to have you on. Thank you for having me. Absolutely delighted to be with you. Awesome. I think it'd be great to start with just a little bit about your background today, but if we could just immediately then transition that into all the interesting work that you did back in the days of Darktrace, because this podcast is about applied machine learning. I think you were really one of the first, if not the first, people to do that successfully in the world of cybersecurity. Awesome. What a lot of fun it is talking about this topic, obviously close to my heart. So... My background then, I had a career in the UK intelligence services, running a lot of data centers and infrastructure and, and communications networks. And I saw firsthand what it was like to be attacked on a daily basis by adversaries that were good at what they did. And then just under 10 years with Darktrace, one of a group of people founding that and scaling it through to IPO and beyond. And then most recently, I'm a general partner at 1011 Ventures. So we're a stage agnostic global cybersecurity investors and trying to pass on some of the, the bumps and the bruises that we learned along the mm -hmm. way into the next generation. Yeah, one of the best funds around for the entrepreneurs listening in the, in the cybersecurity world. So then, yeah, let's just jump right into the dark trace story. I'd love to just hear about the inception of the business, what that core insight around the technology was that led to the founding and then obviously the company's very large and successful today. But let, let's start way back and then we can take it all the way through. It's really a very different environment, this, the cybersecurity community 10 years ago. We didn't use the word cyber very much. It would be called information security. And if you go all the way back to 2012, 2013, it was incredibly unusual to ever admit that you'd been the victim of a cyber attack. This is pre-Target. This is pre-Edward Snowden, you know, businesses would get attacked all the time. They may not have mechanisms for detecting that. And often the first that they would find out about it would be when the criminal revealed themselves, perhaps by selling your data on the black market, or you get a visit from the government telling you mm. that you're in a, an, an awful lot of trouble and you've got to do something about it. Yeah, I was pretty frustrated of how on earth could we not have known with all the security investments that we'd made that this problem was emerging inside of our organization unless you knew exactly what to search for. So for me, the, the driving force was how can these massive organizations and infrastructures that we all operate tell us that something strange and unusual is starting to emerge inside of our organizations, whether that's mm -hmm. human-driven, data-driven, system-driven, and give us a chance to actually do something about it before an incident becomes a crisis. And the, if you like, the technical breakthrough, the, the technical innovation, is, as you mentioned, it came in large part from the University of Cambridge's Digital Signal Processing Lab, where a professor called Bill Fitzgerald was 
doing a lot of work, but um, the bit that was relevant to us was he used a great deal of Bayes' theorem, which is all about, in real time, how can you update your beliefs in light of new evidence? And if you think about cybersecurity, where billions of, literally billions of operations might be happening per minute, per second in a large organization, that ability to constantly revisit your suspicions about whether an attack is happening, your understanding of what this Dave guy is doing inside of your business or what this person communicating with you is doing and are they legitimate is incredibly powerful. And it was that thinking, that application to real-time processing of an algorithm first invented in the 1700s by someone, uh, a religious man trying to prove mathematically the existence of God that was the, the first main driving force of technical breakthrough for Dark Trace itself. Yeah, amazing story. I'd love to get <clears throat> a little bit into the tactical aspect of what exactly Darktrace does as well. What a lot of people think that something like Darktrace is doing is trying to build a single picture top down of what an organization looks like in all of its communications and behaviors, and then looking for changes to that structure or that graph. But this definitely does not work. Uh, it's completely fragile trying to imagine top down what an, an open view or a 1011 or any other institution looks like so what mm. it's really doing is looking at from a bottom-up perspective every single person and device in an organization all the relationships that it has pairwise with others and from a bottom-up perspective saying you know what, me, the mail server over here, I'm really uncomfortable that Andrew normally checks his emails. He doesn't reply to many of them. He sends like 20 a day. But now he's trying to read Dave's emails and the CEO's emails and 700 people's emails. That's just something I don't like, right? Now, that, sh that doesn't happen normally. I don't think it should be happening now. And there's no one discrete data point that makes me think this matches a rule of badness. It's just an overwhelming shift that is unusual for Andrew. It's unusual for his peer group, and I don't think it should be happening, and I'm going to make some configuration changes to stop it. And that idea, whether it's applied to networks, whether it's applied to communications, whether it's applied to accesses in a traditional data center, database, SaaS environment, APIs, is the same idea magnified over and over again. And it builds up an incredibly rich bottom-up picture of normality, but allows the models to ebb and flow as the business changes gradually. But anything sudden gets captured. And crucially, because you have a very pinpoint understanding of what the nature of change is, you can actively reprogram the infrastructure to make the problem go away. Hmm. So if Andrew's the threat right now and it's coming from his laptop, let's just log Andrew out of the email on, on his laptop and see what happens next. And if you come back around another way, then maybe we'll stop that too. But maybe a, a tactical interruption is enough to say, this is an account takeover over here from a criminal, but this activity over here is Andrew behaving normally. We can let him check his email on his phone or access data and do his day job without completely crippling his ability to operate. Yeah, awesome. Okay, awesome context. So we have this sort of picture for, for where it was when you guys got started. And I'm sure that you see it everywhere. A lot of companies have integrated these Bayesian statistics, but... Where else have you seen this applied machine learning having a huge amount of ROI for customers? Something that comes to mind is email security with these more modern vendors like Tessian, Material, and Abnormal. But 
what has gotten you most excited in the last three to five years of, of cybersecurity? I think as we map that journey out, there are some places placed, innovated in this space. Let's call out Silence as another amazing innovator of bringing machine learning and AI techniques into what we would call endpoint detection and response these days. They also did a, a lot of great work in normalizing these ideas of probabilistic approaches rather than definitive rule-based systems and, and CrowdStrike are the, the modern example of that now. You're absolutely right that communications is somewhere where we're all very tolerant of a machine intervening on our day-to-day -day activities and behaviours. The bad old years of spam did a lot to normalise us feeling very comfortable that a machine getting rid of in a probabilistic way, vast swathes of spamming emails and Viagra adverts and stuff like that was great. <laughs> um, but I think the the ones that you just called out, the abnormals, Tessians, materials, dark trace of an email product as well, there are others where they're, for me, really doing stuff at the cutting edge now is when they can tell the difference between an imposter who's gained control of an email account or a Slack account that you normally talk to and say, well, this particular message doesn't look genuine. I think there's someone trying to induce you to do something that's not a good idea, or this is a fraudulent invoice from someone you normally re uh, receive invoices from. Right. That's really exciting. The fidelity you need to say, does this look a bit crappy of an advert versus uh, this is a a normal interlocutor behaving in an unusual way and, and seeking to get you to do something you shouldn't, that's cool. Uh, yeah. And so, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's super cool. I, I mean, it brings up something I've thought a lot about, which is that ChatGPT is very accessible and very effective at generating phishing content. And even if you don't want to use ChatGPT, right. even the more easy to use models. And I feel like the world is, given that that is true, and given that phishing is the number one vector by which attacks happen, the world is not effectively waiting or considering this as a real problem, at least in my view, but I'm curious what you think of that. Totally agree. I think short term, LLMs are going to give us a bumpy ride in cybersecurity, although in the midterm, I think um, they will do a lot of good. There's already something called Worm GPT, uh, Pentest GPT as well. These are The Worm GPT appears to be an LLM with, with no ethical controls on it. Unfortunately, you can Google it and gain access to it fairly easily. And I'm sure people will start to scale up some of the harm they can do. You're right. This, it's not a question of a more plausible phishing email than a human can create. But if you can massively scale up your ability to send automated, highly targeted emails, then that's pretty in intimidating. Yeah. Pentest GPT seems to go a step further and act actively try and attack machine protocols and technical controls and, and defenses that we would have in place using a large language model to pick and choose what different attacks it will do in what order and, and how it will try and um, gain an advantage or get you a foothold. If that goes a step further into lateral movement, as we call it in the industry, where once you've got a foothold in the organization, it uh, does all the work automatically to spread across the organization to conduct a, a mission, then that becomes a lot harder for cyber companies to find out that problems are emerging. You know, a lot of the way that cyber companies catch attacks is seeing the way that the criminal foothold phones home to the attacker. But if it's self-directed, 
that's going to add a new area of complexity to catching these things when they're in progress before they become a crisis. Mm. So, so your view is, if you can imagine a self-contained agent driven by a maybe smaller LLM version that can be remotely deployed, that thing can just sit on the local machine and and or within the network and do everything it needs to do without ever flagging that it might need help from some remote control server, which then becomes very challenging to detect. Yeah, there's this idea called living off the land, forgive the buzzword in, in, in cyber, <laughs> which is all about rather than turning up with a, an attack tool set that um, is going to break down walls in order to move around, you just see what's installed on that machine or you wait for a systems administrator to take control of the machine and you jump onto to, to their machine and, and their accounts and start spreading with their accesses and then you continue to spider out from there. Um, if you've got a piece of malware that's capable enough of understanding what tools are available to it when it, it gains a foothold and being... yeah slow and deliberative in its approach of how it spreads around, that's going to be uh, an exciting and in inverted commas time for cybersecurity yeah. professionals because very easy to mark a lot of that stuff as false positives, right? Oh, yeah, some uh, PowerShell going on over there. That's probably just the uh, help desk fixing Dave's laptop. Um, and very easy for, you know, tired, busy stock analysts just to click that tick button and say false positive, we'll see you later. And yeah. uh, suddenly you're in a heap of trouble. Yeah. I've seen some of these agents, you're basically telling the LLM to think about the steps that it's done, decide what it wants to do next, go execute that step, get the result, add that to the list of things they've done, think about the next step and just iterate on that. But for that to work on-premise without calling back to some cloud LLM, you're going to need it to find within the company's network some set of GPUs to run on Picturing this like Hollywood thing of the, the virus coming into an organization and trying to find the source of energy by which to power itself. And once it does, then it's able to go do whatever it wants without ever phoning home. But it'll be interesting. It's almost like these GPUs become the uranium of a organization where they're very powerful, but you also have to protect them <laughs> even more carefully because uh, they can be fuel for attackers. I love that idea. And sort of building on it, I suspect if you and me are going to start our evil corporation to do this going forwards, then <laughs> what we probably do is use all the LLMs in the out, uh, and GPUs in the outside world and ask them to build something that doesn't require an LLM or what have you to make its decisions when it's mm. um, uh, underway in the mission. And there are Plenty of old-fashioned machine learning techniques that allow us to make probabilistic decisions without needing all the overhead and conversational firepower that the LLMs are, are bringing. So, yeah, I think maybe we use our creativity and the, and the lot and high bandwidth outside, but when it gets into play, maybe it's old-fashioned. But decision trees, sport vector machines, nearest neighbors, there's a lot of cool techniques that don't need serious firepower in order to operate, and they would be perfectly creative on their own without us yeah 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 that's a scary world to think about uh but we're it seems like we're certainly in it right now so see how it goes and, <laughs> and maybe good transition point let's talk about what the response can be or should be i've seen a few papers come out gpt4 unsurprisingly is 98 percent precision and recall and identifying phishing sites um, LLMs are pretty effective at interpreting descriptions from other analysts coming through the threat, in, threat intel feeds, but 
what like before we get into the solutions, maybe just give us a lay of the land of where you think the biggest problems that need to be solved today are in the cybersecurity operations teams. Where are they spending a huge amount of time? Where are they least effective in a way that you think might be well solved by some of this new technology coming out? I'm a bit of a fundamentalist on, on a certain issue, and that is in security, we absolutely need to aggressively move away from having systems that tell human beings there's a problem. Life is too short for the number of problems that we're capable of scanning for and identifying. So for me, regardless of the area in which it's applied, we absolutely have to be generating systems that are capable of either fixing the problem entirely at, at the root cause or mitigating the problem or doing some other hardening that allows us, the organization as a whole to remain robust, even if a certain area is, is vulnerable. And I think with that idea in mind, you could imagine lots of places and application security is very topical at, at the moment. And I think you've probably seen the same uh, papers as I have, which is uh, people using AI co-pilots to write software are in general writing more vulnerable code, but with more certainty, incorrect certainty that the code mm. is secure. And so if we, <laughs> and there are a ton of startups emerging that are capable of spotting some of these vulnerabilities and actually making changes to the code base to minimize the ability of code to call vulnerable subsystems in real time. This is not during compilation stage or while you're assembling the app, but actually once it's deployed in the outside world, can you suddenly do an update and patch over that vulnerable bit of code so the attackers can't run it? This for me is awesome. We don't want to, we shouldn't become slack about thinking about security issues when we build stuff, but if we can have tooling that in real time just fixes things and at the end of the day, end of the week, yeah. lets us know that it's done some great stuff, awesome. If you told me that two years ago, you were going to start changing the code that I wrote as a developer, I would say, F you, Dave, there's no way that's going to happen because, <laughs> you know, security needs to stay the hell out of the application development. But what's interesting is like, if you think of it as a part of the generation pipeline, as part of a co-pilot, then I actually don't really care because it's being generated anyway. So if it can be generated and then security fixed and then put in front of me, it was generated. Like, I don't really care. Right. So you could imagine that. In that sense, it actually works a lot better. Well, um, let's be honest. You were just downloading half, uh, you were copy and pasting half of it from Stack Overflow anyway. Yeah. You? I mean, how much of it was really your code? Yes, yes, and yes. Aside, I still you... don't want you to go edit my code. It's my code. I, I, I chose <laughs> to put it there. I made the dumb decision. You don't get to do that, you know? <laughs> and I think this is, uh, you know, I agree with you. And, and this is a journey that I think the security world has been on in general one of the predictions I have is basic primitives being available or basic building blocks being available to LLMs that are doing code interpretation or writing code where you say, okay, if someone's got to sign in, here's a proven secure sign-in module. Don't go and invent one that looks plausible based on what you've re uh, read on Stack Overflow. If you're doing identity stuff, always use this model. If you're yeah. doing cryptography stuff, always use this model, et cetera, et cetera. It, it's so funny you bring that up. One of the guests I'm going to have on in a couple of weeks is um, the head of developer experience at Credit Suisse. And he's saying, look, as you can imagine, we have immediately outlawed every co-pilot type thing that exists here because of the obvious security issues we're already talking about. But it, you can take a 
organizational enabling view of this. Because if you're pre-training the LLM to say, whenever you want it to your point, do authentication, you're using the Credit Suisse approved uh, authentication endpoint or AD endpoint. And, and separately, hey, like we have all these internal systems that nobody really knows about. And one of the reasons why we have so much application sprawl is because there's not enough central knowledge of what the right thing is to use in a given situation, not even security specific, but just like other systems that are available. And suddenly now these APIs are well understood by an LLM that can automatically pull them off the shelf and write them for you. Suddenly you solve all these complexities that have previously existed in these very large organizations. And, and as well, you go solve the cybersecurity like you're talking about. Exactly. I mean, it's um, the more time you spend thinking about the stuff, the more and more excited you can get about the outcomes. But I think also you can get excited about some whole new classes of companies and products we're going to need on that journey that people are going to invent and create that create some of those building blocks and then and allow that transition to happen. Yeah. I kind of feel this time around, most big transitions in the internet and technology has normally seen cybersecurity really be back of the queue. We'll fix some of that stuff later. Yeah. Don't worry, you're a CISO head about it. Um, this time around, I think people really are trying to think through the implications of all of this stuff and, and what might be required to, to get us over the hump. And that is... That's different even since the cloud transformation. So I'm the, uh, yeah, in the, in the midterm, I'm super excited about all of this. Yeah, yeah. And I do want to go back to, I, I cut you off when we were talking about the application security and you were going into, I think it was security posture management. If right, I mean, that. imagine security posture management, vulnerability management, patching. Um, why on earth would we continue to throw human beings at, uh, at doing the grunt work of one tool over here has told you there's a list of problems that need to be fixed. Another tool over here is going to give you the instructions of how to fix it. And another tool, another 10 tools over here are what you need to press very specific buttons on to go and fix. And I'm sure there are some listeners that are going to be sort of frustrated with me, like downplaying how complex that, that human process is. But it's, for me, it is absolutely something that needs to be dealt with. We can't have humans in the loop of repetitive grunt work on just being told there's an issue that that needs to be rectified by pressing buttons in a, in another ten systems yeah. over here. The thing, in my understanding, that's prevented that from being adopted, this automated remediation, fully closed loop, to the name of the podcast, uh, vision, is that people are just not comfortable with machines making decisions to go potentially affect production applications that have real impact to business. So in what way do you view that, if you view that as the, the issue, as now being solved or not? Firstly, I'd say, okay, well, probably 90% of the tech that you have to worry about is non-production. It's corporate email, it's uh, file systems, it's SharePoint, it's the receptionist desktop and 10,000 office phones or, or whatever, mobile phones, why not start with the 80% or the 90% of other stuff so that all human security capacity is focused on your production systems? That would be an enormous move forwards, right? We've got a incredible skill shortage in cybersecurity. Why are we having people work on non-essential stuff? Like, let's leave that to the machines. I agree that maybe we haven't been there in the past and and a lot of that is because 
a lot of orchestration systems and response systems have required predefined workbooks and workflows that security professionals would have to set up. And it would need a list, it would need an up-to-date list of all the desktops that it was allowed to operate on. And it would need to know the context of everything in the organization. And this is all stuff that's been a bit loose and asset databases haven't been great and keeping those rules up to date is a pain in the ass, especially when the business changes all the time. But I think some of the ability of these LLMs and other techniques to figure it out and to handle the majority of that without falling apart because some of the databases aren't perfect or whatever is really exciting. And I don't want to harp on about Darktrace all the time, but the fact that they're <laughs> uh, tactically doing this, so they haven't been doing a lot of strategic um, resilience stuff, although it's on, uh, they're talking about it for the future. But the ability to say, this is definitely attack, I'm going to reprogram your firewalls. This is definitely attack, I'm going to reprogram your SharePoint and, and cut, cut that off so at least it doesn't turn into a crisis. Yeah. Has shown that there is scope for people adopting this. We just need to get the technology that allows us to do it on a more strategic manner. And I think some of the recent breakthroughs are, are going to enable that to happen. Do you think that the the false positive rate is at a level now where you can, for example, act like confidently turn off corporate SharePoint? Because I, I take your point that it's not sure you lose access for a few hours, whatever, not a huge deal, but it will be a really annoying if it's happening daily and there's just a huge amount of like wrong decisions being made. So do, do you view there have been enough progress to actually start doing something like that? I definitely think so. For yeah. tactical responses, I think, yes, I think... Being able to know that Dave's laptop is damaged and it needs to be rebuilt from an image and working out how that's not to, to my workflow is, is a different problem that needed more reasoning than we had prior to LLMs, but the tactical stuff for sure. And it's amazing how tolerant we all are. I think mobile phones have made us tolerant, actually. The fact that connectivity can drop out, the fact that emails can disappear and uh, be deleted. We're all used to the idea that Sometimes an intervention happens, but if it's important, don't worry, that person's going to ring me up if I missed an email that uh, I should have handled. And yeah. I would understand if I tried to access a file and my system said, look, there's a security concern with your laptop right now. You can't access this particularly sensitive mm. file until we've made some further checks. Fair enough. What do you think about LLMs as effectively explainers of decisions that are being made? Because I almost, I wonder if part of the hesitation is that some of the stuff comes across as a black box. If they block something, someone's like, why the hell is this blocked? They have to go in. Do you think that'll help at all? Is yeah. that going to play a role? Totally. Yeah. And we go a step further, right? What can I do to get back operational? Is there a different way I can do this activity that doesn't break security policy? Yeah, use this corporate file transfer method over here to send your intellectual property over to uh, you know, Brazil or wherever it's going. Mm. Where I get concerned is LLMs are really good about being plausible they're not great at the moment of being exhaustive. And cybersecurity is one of the places where you want to be pretty definitive in a lot of situations. Hey, how many laptops are currently infected in my organization? I don't want a plausible but wrong answer to that. And yeah, I yeah. don't want a plausible but wrong answer to what is the best way of pressing a button in CrowdStrike that will make these problems go away. Maybe a nice transition point to what I wanted to ask you next, which is, where do you view those interesting new pockets of opportunity for 
emerging companies, maybe ones you've already seen or where you think things might emerge in the future. One that comes to mind for me is there's a company called Writer, which does effectively in-house enterprise LLMs, like we were talking about in the context of Credit Suisse. So you can take this privately hosted data controlled, we're not going to go learn from the information you submit to it thing in your organization. It learns from your organization specific content, brand guidelines, et cetera. And you can imagine that working in, in a co-pilot coding situation that feels like a new company that could be created. Writers growing extremely quickly. I'm sure we'll see that emerge somewhere else. But where else do you get excited? Uh, do you see these pockets of opportunity? That's a cool one. Protecting AI systems themselves and working out what the all of the different security aspects of defending these AI systems is definitely a hot space. So MITRE, who are a kind of a taxonomy organization, have come up with the Atlas framework, which is all about the different ways that AI systems can be poisoned, have their decisions damaged, be tricked into revealing internal decision logic, etc. Mm. And so you're seeing Hidden Layer, which is one of ours, start to look at real-time AI system intrusion and detection or attack identification. Protect AI is another. There's going to be equivalence to how do you write safe AI systems in the first place? How do you find vulnerabilities in AI systems in the first place? What does the scanning look like? So Hugging Face has already got models in there that can embed command and control systems. So you run this AI model and some criminal gets control of you. That's not great. We need some scanners to, to root that stuff out. So I think there's a really hot space there. One of the things that we talk about a lot internally at 1011 is security is a best supporting actor where you can do something with secure tools that wasn't the original goal, but does make everyone safer. And there are some applications like how can I improve detecting the authenticity of someone interacting with my services? Can I make sure I only sell trainers to real human beings, end users, not scalpers or Taylor Swift tickets or whatever? Mm. There's going to be a huge amount of change there and some cool startups coming through like Casada that are really making an impact on reducing the bots, the scalpers, the price comparison, scraping and all of that. I also think there's building blocks like we talked about earlier safe code, safe modules, building products that are purely for an LLM to access is such a cool market. I mean, imagine that. How do you market to a series of LLMs? I'm not sure yet. You know, is that yeah. going to be some sort of dynamic marketplace that emerges or the way you have bidding? It, it, um, <laughs> it's funny you bring it up. At OpenView, we do quite a bit of work around product-led growth and SEO specifically. And the question is like, okay, if you have a bunch of people asking LLMs how to do something, how do you get it to spit out the answer that suggests your company? Because it will start to do that. Um, or, or how do you get Copilot to, to put out stub code that calls some API from your paid company and then someone's forced to go set up for an account? It, maybe that doesn't happen all the way through, but you can see a world. It, it's interesting to think about. And the converse, right? And the, the right to be forgotten. Maybe something dumb happens and we, through no bad intention, accidentally poison a bunch of systems that we don't want to retrain for another 70 million bucks, but we'd like to finesse out some stuff over here. Maybe we reveal a load of personal information. Maybe we've uh, broken some uh, legislation or regulation that means we shouldn't have that data in the first place. Yeah, Getting stuff deleted off the internet has been hard enough. Getting stuff deleted out of 
LLM memory feels like it's a bit of a nightmare at the moment. And yeah. if you and me want to do a takedown to to open AI and it's going to cost them another 70 million to rechain GPT-4, they're probably going to say, you know what, we'll do it next year, guys. We'll, they're we'll they're, next yeah. week, they're a bit busy with that FTC letter <laughs> they just got, I think, uh, among other things. <laughs> so you sort of went through a bunch of things to unpack in that, but security of ML itself applying ML to other security efforts like anti-bot and then the disinformation stuff, which is all interesting. On category two, the anti-bot, the challenge now is, I think, maybe twofold. Number one is you're going to see a huge amount more bot traffic, I would imagine. Right. Um, But the more challenging piece is that a lot of that bot traffic may now actually be driven by your end users. Previously, it was easier like, yeah, look, it's Google and then all these bots that I really don't want anyway, and they're not adding any value to my business. But now that's actually not the case necessarily. And so how would you think through that, given that it's not as simple as a problem anymore? The cat and mouse game will definitely continue tactically for sure. This is total speculation on on my point, but I think we've been on something of a journey of having an increasing amount of personal identity involved as we go off and take actions as individuals in the workplace or as citizens. So when I think how often I'm doing something and I'm already logged in as Google and Google's representing that this is Dave Farmer or Apple is or Facebook is or whatever, you know, maybe when we start engaging with these huge centralized AI tooling, there is continues to be some momentum towards, hey, uh, I and LLM are trying to gain access to this piece of information or buy a widget or uh, transact with a service, but it's on behalf of Dave. And that's traceable back. You know, I think this identity-tied um, behavior that most of us exhibit when we're acting on behalf of the workplace or, or as citizens is more dominant than, than the, the trend for privacy and, and anonymization. So I think there's some of that likely to go on. I think it brings other benefits in terms of cybersecurity and reducing bullying. I think ultimately it isn't going to be, whether my prediction is right or wrong, it isn't going to stay the same. I don't think we're going to have a Web2 style continuous relationship with these LLMs that doesn't result in whole new concepts of relationship and identity and acting on behalf. And we're going to need that because if we're going to have a load of AI assistants or agents that are doing stuff for us, that can't be completely generic. I don't believe that in five years time we fast forward and all of that's happening in a generic way from a random IP address in in Amazon that happens to belong to an LLM provider or an AI provider. Um, Something's going to shift there. Yeah, yeah. I want to go back to, I'm going in reverse order, but you were on category two, which was ML security. <laughs> or sorry, uh, ML applied to existing security categories. Going to number one, which is like security of ML itself. How do you guys at 1011, certainly we, certainly we struggle with here at, at OpenView, get comfortable with investing in something that is so dynamic in how it's being used? If, at least for me, you could hypothesize as to where the risks might be, but I'm curious how you guys think about it. I don't think there's a a magic answer here. Uh, One of the things we've talked about a lot internally is when you're working on something that's over the horizon, how do you even take feedback? How do you even, you know, if you go and walk in a really cutting edge new idea 
like a hidden layer was a few years ago when we seeded that around a bunch of CISOs, they'll say, I literally don't have that problem. I'll tell you what my problem is, spear phishing. And <laughs> of course they do. They're, they're absolutely getting hammered. You can't crowdsource this vote. You, you can't go and say, if there was an electronic means of surveying 10,000 CISOs, 10,000 CISOs two years ago would have told you, I don't need to secure my AI models, or at least the overwhelming majority would. So we all have investment committees, right? We have groups of people from different disciplines and backgrounds weighing in on a decision. And you've got to create a vision for the future. And when it's really over the horizon stuff, I think a lot of the conversation comes down to how rigid is this vision? Is it flexible enough that we believe it can cope with inevitable change in the ecosystem? And how flexible are the team? Do they have a vision? Sure. Do they have some ability to see what is resonating and what isn't and iterate and, and maybe move to, to slightly different parts of the stack or customer base or use case, depending on the traction and the feedback that they get. But also if they still got enough in the tank that they can build to their big vision, even if they have to tactically satisfy some more immediate concerns that are coming up from the customer base. And that's hard to measure, but also, it's fun. And for me, it's the day job. If you're going to invest in something that's pre-product, pre-revenue, or both, then how do you build that conviction and set them up in a way that you're not just kicking off a ton of science experiments, but that you're actually enabling teams to climb a mountain range, even though you don't know exactly what the path up there is? Yeah. Well, Dave, I feel like we should do this again in three months. Um <laughs> Once the world has evolved uh, or continued on its very fast path of evolution and see where we are. Um, but this was, uh, this was great. Thank you so much for joining me on this. It was super fun. Thanks very much for having me.